This morning we're going to be reading from Jeremiah 7, 16 through 34. And while you're looking that up, you can also use your electronic devices. Um, it's on page 796 if you're using a pew Bible. 16 through 34. So do not pray for, for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, and the women knead the dough and make the cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. But I am the one there but am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord. Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go, God, ahead and add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day by day, again and again, I sent you, my servants, the prophets. But they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their forefathers. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. When you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore, say to them, this is the nation that has not, has not obeyed the Lord, it's God or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. Cut off your hair and throw it away. Take up a laminate in the barren heights of the Lord, for the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord, and they have set up their desolate detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places of Tepeath in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Tepeath, the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury the dead in Tepeath until there is no more room. Then the carcasses of this people will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, to the voices of, of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, it's good to be back in the land of the living again, and man, it's been a couple weeks since I've seen y'all. I was gone a couple Wednesdays ago, traveling out of, out of state for a meeting, and, and then 
on Sunday, I was all ready to go on Father's Day, and my entire family went down with the stomach thing, and then they decided to share it with me, and then, anyway, good to be back, good to be feeling normal again, and uh, so we pick up in this series, long story short, where we're looking at everything from the beginning of the Bible to the end, from Genesis to Revelation. Now, I said we're looking at everything. We're really not looking at everything. If you want to look at everything, you can come close. If you follow along with us in these reading plans, and we should, you should find one of these in your bulletin, and it'll give you uh, five readings that you can do this week to kind of prepare for next week's message and kind of fill in the gaps because... Um, boy, there's just a lot that we can't cover in 13 weeks. Uh, so this is really kind of a uh, hitting the high points as we go. And so, so far we've looked at creation and how God ordered everything uh, to, to function and within certain boundaries and, and inside certain, uh, with certain balance and, and how that got out of balance and out of order when, when humankind entered into sin and chose their way instead of God's way. Then we talked about how God started using ordinary people and he made a covenant with a guy named Abraham and said, I'm going to use you and your family to make a difference, to bring things back to a better place, to bless all the nations. And through your family, I'm going to do this. And so this journey begins. And we've talked about how uh, Abraham's family grew, but they got enslaved in Egypt, and, and they were there for a long time. Uh, by the way, do I need to do anything different here with this? I'm really loud and feedbacky. Uh, I can use a different mic or whatever, just let me know. Okay. Uh, so, the exodus happened, right? And we, that's famous. They, the, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them by his mighty hand and Moses led the way and they had got the Ten Commandments and how to live God's way and, uh, and then boy they didn't really do that good of a job with it and so uh, they didn't uh, anyway they ended up finally making it into the promised land and God gave them this new land for a new life with him and again they didn't make that good of use of it and then they turned to kings instead of gods. We talked about that last week. And then the kings began to lead them astray as well. And that's where we find ourselves today as we talk about the warning that God gave to his people before he lowered the boom. <laughs> All right, that's kind of where we're at today as we begin uh, our service today. I went to college a long time ago now, it seems like, at Mid-America Christian University. Highly recommend it. All you young people, think about it. <laughs> Oklahoma City sounds flat and tornado-y, but it's really not that bad. Uh, we, I really enjoyed that season of my life. And, but one thing, you know, it's a, it's a season of your, in, of your life where you kind of get away from home and, and you begin to kind of find out who you are and you got to kind of force to mature a little bit, hopefully. And um, one thing about me is I'm kind of like, a, I don't know if an old soul would be a nice way to say it, I'm, or a goody two-shoes, I don't know what you want to call it. Like, I'm just kind of like a, a guy that, I, I guess I have a strong sense of right and wrong. That doesn't always mean that I do what's right, but, but I can usually look at like what other people are doing and tell if it's right or wrong. You know, people with that gift, you might call them judgmental or something, but I, I prefer better terms. Um, so when I went to college, you know, I had this habit with my friends of, I would like warn them about their behavior. Now you'd think at a Christian university everyone just comes saintly, right? Uh, but in fact, 
college kids are pretty much college kids, I think. And so you, I had friends do all sorts of stupid stuff and you just knew where it was gonna land them and you could see it coming from a mile away and they're just headed for it and so I felt like it was my duty, especially the first year or two of college, like to be my friend's parent away from home, you know? Uh, to, to try and reason with these people before they just ran off and did stupid stuff. And of course, again, you know, not like I was perfect, but I was going to set them straight anyway. So eventually that just kind of blew up in my face. I got tired of being, uh, you know, that just when you warn people about stuff, they don't usually receive it well, do they? Uh, it, it's, it's not really like a positive interaction. And so they'd get mad at me. And I kind of finally came to the realization, like, my friends don't want a parent. That's <laughs> like, they don't want their friend to be a parent, just a friend. And so I kind of bitterly just resigned, like, let them do whatever stupid stuff they want to do. I'm just going to be their friend and not say a word about it. And so that was fine, worked fine for a while. And then, uh, I don't, towards the end, I think, of my senior year in college, uh, a friend of mine came and said, hey, I'm about to go do this stupid thing. And I said, okay. Because I had decided in my mind, no more warnings from me. I'm just gonna, I'll still be his friend when he gets back. If he wants to go be stupid, he can go be stupid. And so he did. And later, he came back and he said, why didn't you stop me? <laughs> like, can't win for losing. <laughs> but those words kind of still haunt me. And I kind of realized that even though it's not really pleasant to be the warner, and no one really likes to be the warn e either, You can't really be a friend and not try and keep your friend from harm, right? And so today I have to give a warning. And uh, I don't like giving warnings. It's not really fun. And we don't like receiving warnings, so it won't be fun for you either. <laughs> but we're going to do this together. And we're going to look at a story of like, a guy who had no fun in his whole life. Jeremiah. Now, I don't know. Maybe he played a game once or something. I, I don't know if he never had fun, but the guy was miserable. I, I sometimes read about Jeremiah and feel guilty about my call to ministry and that I get to serve in this wonderful church family and you, you take so good care of me and my family. And when I preach, most of you at least smile and nod, even if it means you nod off to sleep. You still you smile and you're not. And so I'm grateful for that. And this guy had a very different calling and a very different message to give and a very different people to deliver it to. And it was miserable. And he suffered from depression. And they threw him in a cistern to leave him to die. They were sick of hearing him. He watched his colleagues who had a similar calling be martyred for it. But he had the worst. If there's something worse than being martyred, it's having to predict all these things that were going to happen to your people and then staying alive long enough to watch it happen in all its gruesome details. To watch your nation and your community utterly and violently destroyed before your very eyes. Torn apart. 
And you called it. And nobody listened. This is Jeremiah. If you're ever feeling too happy, you can read his book called Lamentations. It'll fix you. It's just Jeremiah pouring out his sorrow. But even in the midst of that sorrow, he wrote the words that inspired one of our favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. So, really amazing guy, Jeremiah. This passage in particular caught my attention, for one, because God just, he's given up. He's had it. Tells Jeremiah, stop even praying for these people. I'm done with them. Imagine that, God saying, don't even bother praying for them anymore. He even told Jeremiah to cut off his hair, <laughs> which doesn't mean much right to us at first, but in their culture they would take vows to God for some assignment that they were doing for God. And part of that vow would be to grow their hair and not cut their hair as long as they were fulfilling that vow. And, and so the Apostle Paul did this, for instance. In one of his mission uh, journeys, and when he finished that mission, then he cut his hair. And so God's saying, finish your mission. You're done. Cut your hair. Stop praying for them. We're done with these people. Wow. What's amazing? So all these things that the people were doing to provoke God, God says, are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Let's talk for a moment about the nature of God's wrath and the nature of sin so that we can understand how a good God could say, Jeremiah, stop praying for them, cut your hair, we're done with them. For one, God's wrath. If you notice how it talks about it, even here, he talks about rejecting them. Abandoning them. Truth is, they've rejected him. And he's saying, okay, I'll leave then. I'll leave. They've turned to other gods, they've turned to other ways. They've proven that they have no respect for him, no desire for him in their lives or in their nation. And God is a gentleman, as we say. Okay, have it your way. And such is the nature of God's wrath. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about it the same way. That God turned them over. God turns us over to the desires of our hearts. If we don't want Him, fine. But be prepared to suffer the consequences of God taking His hands off. Saying, you have it then. It never goes well. So like a parent... God says, are they not rather harming themselves? Because every parent knows 
when your kid decides he wants to get back at you by not doing what you said he ought to do. <laughs> it's not really you that they're hurting, right? Like you put the rule in place for their good. And they say, ah, I'm going to show dad or I'm going to show mom. And they run off and, and do what they want to do. And who does it hurt? And this is God and his wrath towards Israel. Because here's the nature of sin. And we've talked about this already in this series. The, the nature of sin is not just like rule breaking. As if God created some arbitrary rules and he thought, these sound good, let's see if they can keep these. Uh, but rather that, that God designed us to function in a certain way and when we live in different ways, outside of the way he said we ought to live, then we are just asking for a bruising. We, we are missing the mark of what it means to be human, of how we were designed to function in this created world. And when we decide we want to live it our way and do things our way, well, maybe that would work if we had designed it that way, but it, we did not. <laughs> God designed it His way. And when we choose to live in a different way, it has consequences in our life. This is sin. And God's wrath is saying, okay, go ahead and live your way. But just know that there's consequences for that. So that's what we see going on here. And God kind of, in a sort of summary statement, I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Here's the deal. There's a way that leads to life. And a way that leads to death. There is. There's two ways you can live. You can live your life in a way that leads to life. To goodness. Or you can live your way, your life in a way that leads to death and destruction and brokenness drama and problems and yeah and the Israelites chose death many of us we choose death even people who call themselves Christians and go to church many of them choose the way that leads to death I mean, that's the way that they order their lives because the world's way perhaps is more attractive to them. But ultimately, I think it boils down to the thing that God said. There is stubborn, stubbornness, <laughs> stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. This runs very counter to the world's wisdom, especially our culture's wisdom right now. Uh, it's very popular to talk about how each of us is completely perfect just the way we are and our, our youth get bombarded with this all the time uh, even by well-meaning parents and teachers and everybody you know like just the way you are is perfect and and so just explore you know your feelings and your inclinations they're unique to you and they're and God gave them to you and so just if you can fulfill those then you'll fulfill your dreams and you'll be happy it sounds really good but according to God he didn't make you with all those evil inclinations. 
That's something called sin that has rooted its way into the human race. And so, yes, each of us are born with some really good things about us and some things that God placed there and some gifts and some abilities. But we also are born with some stubborn inclinations. And not all those inclinations are good. Let's be honest. I mean, come on, surely no one would suggest that all of their inclinations are good and noble. Aren't some of them a little vain? A little selfish? Aren't some of us inclined to get really angry? A little too angry? Aren't some of us inclined to treat people in ways that they shouldn't be treated? To look at people in ways they shouldn't be looked at? We're inclined in all sorts of directions. We're oriented in all sorts of directions that doesn't make any of them good just because they are in our hearts. There is a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. I want to share something with you. The last part of this passage we read. I think it's going to be our bridge, actually, to Jesus in this series. Because I'm trying to show throughout this how Jesus is the subject of the entire Bible. Old and New Testament. Everything points to Him. Everything is connected to Him. Jesus had a lot of strong warnings, too. We're going to connect some of His warnings with some of Jeremiah's warnings next. There's this curious bit of history we're given where we get these places and events. We read that they, being the Israelite people, the people of Judah, living in Jerusalem, they've built the high places of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. Something I did not command, nor did it ever enter my mind. So beware. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it Topheth, or the valley of ben Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury the dead in Topheth till there's no more room. So they had this valley just outside of Jerusalem. And they had turned it into this place of pagan worship. Idols, you know, that kind of thing. They had all kinds of pagan worship that we know that the Israelites engaged in, even though their temple to the Lord God, the one God, was sitting right there in their city's midst. Just outside the gates is this valley. And they would worship Asherah, the fertility god. You can imagine the things they might have done in that worship. And they would worship this god, Molech, by sacrificing their children to him. And we shake our heads and we wonder, why and, and how? But I mean, come on. 
here in our 21st century America, do we not sacrifice millions of children on the altar of choice? We have lots of idols in our country. And we do lots of crazy things in pursuits of them. Just looks different. So they had this place, this valley, obviously infuriated God. And so he tells them, the very place where they had been sacrificing their children, that's the place where they'll keep the bodies when judgment comes. And it did come. 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar stood outside their gates and they piled the dead in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. How many of you have heard of the valley of Ben-Hinnom before today? Or you, you know, that was in your mind, you had that, okay. <laughs> How many of you have heard of its Greek name, Gehenna? Anyone heard of Gehenna? A few people have heard of Gehenna. That's because it's in your New Testament, and Jesus uses it, except the reason why most of you haven't heard of Gehenna is because very few Bible translations actually translate that word. If they translated it, it would say Gehenna. But I guess they figure most people don't know what that place is. And so they translate it, actually they substitute a word, hell. Gehenna is the Greek term for Valley of Ben-Hinnom, the Hebrew. And so when Jesus, most of the time when you read him saying the word hell, he's actually saying Gehenna, which is a physical location outside of the gates of Jerusalem that he was referencing. Not some underworld, you know, with pitchforks and flames. And, you know, it's more really, as I've studied it, that's more of a pagan concept and a medieval concept, you know, Dante's Inferno and all that. This was an actual place. See, after this, and the 587 BC thing, and the destruction of Jerusalem, and they tore down the walls, and they tore down the temple, and they killed a whole bunch of people, and they dragged a whole bunch of people off exile. Well, eventually, as God promised, the exiled people were allowed to come back and begin to rebuild. And when they did, you can imagine that this particular valley did not hold pleasant memories for them. It held memories of their great sin against God. And it held memories of 587 B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar of death. So I don't know exactly when they turned it into a trash heap, but they turned it into a trash heap. Trash heap really doesn't share the extent of it. It was the place where, you know, in an ancient city, you, they didn't have stuff like we've got today, you know, like processing plants and stuff. So, I mean, it's the place where all the refuse went, all the human waste, 
and where they threw the bodies of criminals executed, especially at least by Jesus' day. By Jesus' day, this was a place where there was always a fire burning, either to burn trash or executed criminals. Sounds like a lovely place, right? We keep our city dump outside of town, right? Because no one wants to smell that. No one wants to see that. They did too. And I've got to think they probably chose the location because what else would you do with a place that holds those kinds of memories? So Jesus would say things like anyone who harbors anger and spite towards others will be guilty enough for Gehenna. Jesus said it would be better to lose an eye or a limb than to go into Gehenna. Which might have been something that, <laughs> like if you were sentenced of a crime, everyone there would much rather have a limb chopped off than to be thrown into Gehenna. Like they would much rather that be their punishment, right? Okay, I stole something. Just take a hand off. Don't send me there. This is because of several things. I mean, one, yeah, you don't want to die. But if you were thrown into Gehenna, it meant that you were guilty, a criminal, cursed, because they probably executed you on a cross. And the Jews believed anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God. And then your body was thrown in there to be eaten by vultures and burned. And your bones left as ash, lost. That was significant to them because in their culture they had this burial ritual where they put you in a tomb and they rolled a stone in front of it to keep the smell out while you decayed and did your thing. <laughs> All right? And then once you were down to just bones, they would come in and collect your bones, put them in a bone box, an ossuary, and they would slide that box into a niche in the tomb, probably with all your family members. And the hope was that at the end of the age, when God came and set things right at last, those who were faithful would be resurrected. And so they wanted their, bo their bones there together, so they could be resurrected together, right? To be thrown into Gehenna meant your bones weren't there. Your bones were never collected. You were lost forever. And you were cursed by God anyway. You'd, you wouldn't share in the resurrection, right? How could you? All this was in their minds when Jesus said, Be warned, lest you fall into Gehenna. To the religious people who were trying to earn their way through good works into the kingdom. He said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of Gehenna? Because on the outside they were trying to do everything right, but on the inside they were just as twisted and warped as you could be. All their motives were wrong. They didn't love God. They didn't love others. 
Jesus came to bring life. But even he made it known that if you're hell-bent on death, you can find it. And that's still true today. There's still a way that leads to life. We call it the Jesus way. He showed us. He taught us. He laid it out there for us. He sent His Holy Spirit to begin doing a changing work within us so that we could increasingly live it. And when we step into that life, we step into His kingdom and out of judgment and death. There is a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death. Choose life. Choose God. Choose resurrection. Choose Jesus. Choose new creation. Choose a better way. Choose to worship the Creator who made all things instead of the created things around us. I beg you to do it. No, I warn you to do it. In the footsteps of Jeremiah, and in the name of Jesus, our true King, I warn you this day that there is a way that seems right to humankind. But in the end, in the end, it leads to death. I didn't make that up, by the way. That's Solomon in the Proverbs. There's a way that seems right to us in this world. But in the end, it leads to death. And so God warns us again and again, follow my ways. Don't follow your ways. Follow my inclinations, not the inclinations of your stubborn, evil heart. And you'll find your way headed towards life instead of death. This was Jesus' mission. His hope for you. And he said to all who believe. There's not too many people in our world who believe this story. If they did, it would have to change the way they think about things. I used to think that when the Bible said believe in Jesus, that they just meant like, you know, believe. I was like, how could that be all there is to it? You know, you just believe that Jesus like existed, that he died and rose again. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's believe Jesus. Believe that he was telling the truth. Believe that his story is the real story and everything else is a lie. And that changes your whole mind. Because that means that the way that you were living was headed for destruction and you have to accept that if you're going to believe Jesus. That means that there is a God and it's not you and it's not me and it's not anything around us. And we have to accept that if we're going to believe Jesus. And there's a better way to do it. There's a better way to live. And we have to believe that if we believe Jesus. See, it's really about realities. About the truth. God said through Jeremiah in that passage we read that the people had rejected the truth for a lie. 
just give you a few examples of truth, and this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, but the truth is, if you harbor anger and bitterness in your heart, it will destroy you. The reality is, if you decide to be sexual outside of marriage, it will have consequences on your relationships. Not positive ones. The truth is, if you don't control your eating, your health will deteriorate. The reality is, if you weave lies and speak dishonestly, you are setting yourselves and others up for ruin. The truth is, if you spend your life comparing yourselves to others and longing for what they have, you'll never find anything of true worth. The reality is, it would be better not to have an eye at all than to use it to stare at pornography. The truth is that placing yourself under the influence of substances is a recipe for disaster. The reality is that constant fretting and anxiety does nothing to secure your wealth, does nothing to secure your loved ones, and only serves to ruin you. The truth is that that rationale that you spin in your mind for whatever behavior it is that you're trying to justify, why it's okay, why it won't hurt anyone, why it's just 12 brownies. Whatever it is, the truth is, it's just your way of tuning out the warning. That there is a way that leads to life. And there is a way that leads to death. And for some reason, few people choose life. In 587 BC, a people who wouldn't face reality and wouldn't heed the warnings suffered the consequences. And Jeremiah got to watch it unfold. And if several hundred years later, Jesus comes along and he offers warnings to a nation that was again headed towards disaster. And he would speak to their leaders and he would say, You're, danger, you're in danger of Gehenna. They knew the history. And they repeated it. And in 70 AD, Titus, who would soon become Roman emperor, stood outside Jerusalem's gates again. And he tore down the temple again. They had just finished rebuilding. And they buried the dead in the valley of Ben-Hinnom again. Will we learn what will be our fate? What will we choose this day? One thing I love about the people that God sent to warn the Israelites is that they always brought hope to I always brought hope to, and I want to share just a portion of it. In fact, it might sound familiar to you if you've been here for other parts of this series as we talked about the covenant and things like that. 
In chapter 31, Jeremiah shares this. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is the hope that is made real by Jesus Christ. He's the one who brought that new covenant by his blood. And in his resurrection, we have hope of new life. To bid farewell to our past, God says he'll forgive it and remember it no more. Reject the ways of this world and choose life. For rest assured, there is a way that leads to death. Let's pray together. God, thank you for warning us. We admit that our stubborn hearts are often inclined toward evil. We here today seek your forgiveness. Holy Spirit, make new hearts in us, we pray. Amen.